0: Well, you were singing this morning like you meant it. It's good stuff. Well, now that we've worshiped through singing, let's worship through the word. Mark chapter three, beginning at verse 13. If you have a Bible, you want to open it up there and we'll be spending our time this morning kind of working our way verse by verse with this passage. Or you can read it on the screen. Mark chapter three, verse 13. 13. And Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed them twelve, designating them as apostles, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. And these are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the nickname Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. And then there was Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And Father, we do thank you in the name of Jesus for your word. And we pray it, and we read it together in the name of Jesus, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Well, in February, it happens every year. We have this world phenomenon called the Super Bowl. (laughs) And that Super Bowl, at the end of that game, the winner gets the Lombardi Trophy, named after probably the greatest NFL coach who's ever lived, Vince Lombardi. One thing I bet you didn't know, that when Vince Lombardi would conduct his summer training for his team, they'd all show up, and the first day of practice, the first thing that he would do, would stand before them, and he would say, gentlemen, this is a football. <laughs> he, he was trying to say that, folks, if we're going to be a great team, we can never forget the basics, ever, ever. John Wooden, that legendary coach of the UCLA Bruins back in the 60s and 70s, Lou Alcinder, or who later became uh, Kareem Abdul Jabbar, and uh, a number of others that played for him, said that the first day of practice every season, he would take the team into the locker room and would say, Gentlemen, this is how you put on your socks. This is how you tie your shoes. And they'd all snicker, and he said, Gentlemen, if you don't get this right, You're risking injury to your feet and to your ankles. Even a simple blister can put you on the bench, you won't be at your best, and you'll hurt the team. Back to basics, back to fundamentals. Woody Hayes, didn't he build a dynasty around this very simple philosophy? Leroy up the middle on two. (laughs) Yeah. Howard Schultz, president, founder, CEO of Starbucks. After explosive growth of the Starbucks company in the early 2000s, he took a tour of some of his stores and he came back with the realization that something was wrong. Something was in common among these stores that he visited and it was wrong. And he thought about it and he came to the conclusion that hey, these stores have grown so fast and we've grown our menu so fast to include breakfast sandwiches and pastries and fruit and all this other stuff. And we're doing retail merchandising and so on. And we have music and Wi-Fi and you name it. And we've gotten off track. We've got to get back to the basics. What is our purpose? And so on February the 26th, 2009, he directed that 7,000 Starbucks nationwide would be closed for three hours in the afternoon and they spent that three hours retraining the baristas, 135,000 of them, how to brew the perfect cup of coffee. (laughs) Because you see, in all the distractions, they had lost their edge. And that's why you go to Starbucks. Not just to hang out. You go for the smell, if you're not a coffee drinker, (laughs) you go for the smell and the coffee beverage itself. You see great leaders, whether they're generals, teachers, doctors, whatever discipline or area of interest you have, the great leaders, and even ordinary folks who live great lives, you know the one thing they all have in common? They never forget the basics, the fundamentals, And what I'd like to do today is to take you into a passage that I believe takes us back to the basics of discipleship, Christian discipleship, and what that looks like. Now, when I say the word disciple, a lot of times we just kind of we just automatically jump in our Bibles over to Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them everything that I've commanded, and I'm going to be with you all the way through the process. Isn't that what we usually do? But what would you say if I told you that's not the core of discipleship? Mm -mm. No, it's not. And when we believe that Matthew 28, 19, and 20 is the core of discipleship, what have we done? We've forgotten one of the basics of discipleship. So today, I want to take you back through an experience that I had and what resulted from it. When I, about 20 years ago, I was pastoring a church and I forgot the basics. I messed up. My life became a mess. And I messed up big, yeah, that kind of a mess. My mistress was my ministry. My idol. My distraction. And that's what makes it so subtle and so tricky. Because we can get so involved and swept up and consumed in doing stuff for Jesus that we've forgotten the basic of what it means to be with him. And to develop that intimate friendship. Yes, he's our savior. Yes, he's our Lord. But what does it mean to have him as our friend? And to enjoy that intimate friendship with him. And what does that look like on an everyday basis in our lives? So I want to take you, and I, and I think I've, I've, as I found out that I would forgotten the basics And I got my life, my head, my heart back in the right place and um, got my inner compass back on true north. Little did I realize God was going to use this experience, this crisis, to thrust me into a deep, extensive study of discipleship. And I've been reading about discipleship and practicing it and training it and teaching it for well over 20 years now. And so today, I want to stand here confidently challenging the conventional thinking of evangelical Christians about what full-throttle discipleship to Jesus Christ really is. Now, I know that sounds arrogant and pompous. It really isn't intended to be so, but I hope it will be a signpost to all of us and a reminder of what the basic, what's the real essence of full-throttle discipleship to Jesus Christ so I'm going to give you um, three or four remarks before I get into my outline of what I've concluded over the years of studying and training and practicing discipleship and those four remarks are very simply this the first one is the only way to find the life that God has designed for you and intends for you to live in all of its fullness is through authentic discipleship to Jesus Christ We try to take our different pathways and our different avenues and this and that, but the only way to the best life possible, yes, and it sounds too good to be true, but it is true, is through Jesus Christ, who came to give us life and to give it abundantly, to learn how to flourish. The next comment that I'd like to make is, discipleship is intended as a way of life for all who believe in Jesus Christ. Discipleship is not intended to be a second tier of commitment necessarily. It's not the next step that we take when we finally decide we want to be serious about following Jesus. I believe that when you invite Christ into your life and you trust in what he did for you on the cross, that his blood was shed for you to reconcile you to God the Father, that's just the first step of discipleship. It's the beginning. It's the first step in the door to a whole new life of following Jesus. You see, I can't imagine the New Testament writers distinguishing between a convert and a disciple. I don't think it's there. When the Romans were hauling Christians in to persecute them, those Christians didn't say, oh, but wait a minute, I'm just a convert. You don't have, I'm no threat. No, no. They went to the Colosseum because they were followers, disciples of Jesus. So if you're in Christ here today, I believe the Bible says very clearly that you are also a disciple, a disciple. The next comment that I'd like to make or the next remark is there is no problem I'm aware of no problem facing any individual or any church that can't be remedied by authentic, full-throttle discipleship to Jesus Christ. Try me sometime after the service. You sold me a problem, and if we drill down deep enough, the real issue is somewhere discipleship has been neglected or it's broken down. And my final remark would be this. Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. He's the hope of the world. And it's the church, his body, that has been entrusted with the message of the hope of the world. And we must get it right, that authentic, full-throttle discipleship to Jesus Christ is the gospel, the good news, and the hope of the world. So, if we were to jump to Matthew 28, 19, and 20, as I quoted for you a few minutes ago, when we think of discipleship, I would suggest to you that that's just the back bookend of a long shelf of discipleship. Do You know where the first bookend is? Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. Now, let's take this verse apart, or these verses, and find out what discipleship really is then. First of all, there's the absolute principle, the absolute principle of authentic, full-throttle discipleship of Jesus Christ. The authentic, or the first, the absolute principle. He appointed 12 that they might be with him. Now that's an easy, lazy, simple, almost unnoticeable preposition, with. But in this context, it makes all the difference in the world. Folks, it's not just a gold nugget. It's a vein of gold. When we start unpacking what this concept of withness, I call it, means. You see, disciples, a disciple is a student. It's a learner. It's a a protege. It's an apprentice. Almost every vocation or profession has some manner of discipleship about it because you take an older master of the trade and he brings in a student and trains them so that he learns the trade and he becomes just like his master. That sound familiar? Luke chapter six, verse 40, when the student is fully trained, he will become like his master. You see, what Jesus did as a rabbi with his disciples was nothing new. They'd been doing it for centuries in the Greek world. Socrates, Aristotle, Plato. But the Jewish form of this kind of education was a rabbi who would gather around him a small group of students, usually hand-selected, invited to come along, Sometimes if parents had enough money, they would pay to have the rabbi tutor their child because back then they didn't have formal education. You didn't go to college or university or even high school for that matter, but to be formally trained, you attached yourself to a mentor or a rabbi, a master teacher And you lived with that person and you ate with that person and you traveled with that person and you conversed with that person and you lived with that person so that you would learn everything about them, including what they were really like in their character. And the goal was to become just like them and in some cases, even better, even better. Now, the rabbinic model, the rabbinic idea of discipling interestingly enough, I found, is what they used to call the spiral. It's a Jewish rabbinic pedagogy of the spiral. There's four phases to it. The first phase is instruction. After a rabbi had assembled his little group of disciples, he would instruct them. He would stand, usually, or sit, and his students would sit around his feet listening to what he said. Does that sound like Luke chapter 10? Verse 38 through 42, where Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to what he has to say. That's the posture of a disciple. So he's giving them, he's lecturing them, he's giving them information. And then he allows them to ask questions, and they banter back and forth, and they process the information so they're getting it crystal clear. That's instruction. The second part of the spiral is imitation. The student would try to practice imitating his teacher in every way in order to become like them. <laughs> uh, this sounds kind of crude, but it's actually historical, uh, historically documented where there's some rabbinic students who would follow their rabbi into the toilet just to watch him do his business so they could be like him in every way. Don't try that, okay? <laughs> but that's the extent that they would go to to become so much like their master that it would be hard for an observer to tell the difference between the two in the way they lived their lives. So you have instruction, you have imitation. Thirdly was examination. The rabbi, after a period of time, would send these apprentices out to practice what he'd been teaching them and what they had been practicing in imitation. Does that sound familiar? Jesus sent out the 70. He sent out the disciples on little missions to practice, to learn, and come back and process with him so that he was certain they were getting what he was trying to give them. And then there was the fourth phase of the spiral. See, and it's, it's this way, and then the fourth phase would go out the end of the spiral, culmination, or what we call the Great Commission, duplication. The rabbi would say, all right, you're ready. now." you go and do in somebody else's life what I've done in yours. Allah, Matthew 28, 19 and 20. However, we've got to remember that that's the last phase of the spiral. The last phase. So the absolute principle is withness. Learning to be with. Jesus. Now, what does this look like? You know, if we were to walk back into the first century, Jesus and his disciples spent a lot of time on the road together, walking from destination to destination, from ministry opportunity to ministry opportunity. Now, if I were to take all of us back to Jerusalem right now, and we would have breakfast, for example, or brunch, We could then drive to Tel Aviv on the coast of the Mediterranean for lunch, and then we could go up to Galilee on the northeast sector for dinner, and then still drive back to Jerusalem by nightfall because it's only about a 60 mile loop. Very easy to drive. But how long do you think it took Jesus and his disciples to do that? Sometimes days, weeks, months. What do you think they did between those times? They probably asked questions. I mean, what would you ask? What would you do if you were one of those disciples having just seen Jesus feed 5,000 people with seven little loaves of bread and a few fish? What would you say? After you're detached from the crowd, you're moving on, Jesus says, let's go on to the next place. What do you think they were talking about? (laughs) I think Peter probably was following along thinking and then he just finally stopped and says, Jesus, how did you do that? Or after he rose and brought somebody back from the dead. Or after he healed somebody. Or when he taught in parables. The guys would say, Jesus, why did you say it that way? Why did you use a parable? Why don't you just come out with it? Stop giving them these riddles, these goofy stories. Just tell them. <laughs> and then one time they said, Lord, teach us to pray. Because they'd seen him pray, and they wanted to be just like him. Teach us to pray. The absolute principle of discipleship is withness. Now, what's that look like for us? Learning to be with Jesus is digging into the scriptures, because this is what tells us about Jesus, how he lived. Saturate yourself in the four gospels, Develop a prayer life of intimacy, not just spot prayers or arrow prayers, I call them. But pray without ceasing. Take your relationship with him seriously so that as you leave these doors, you're not leaving Jesus back here. He is with you when you're driving and when you're studying and when you're cooking and when you're doing laundry or when you're crunching numbers or whatever the case might be. And have a conversation with him through the day. And it's practicing things that he said to do, like how do I forgive somebody who stabs me in the back? Most of us would say, I'm not going to do it. Jesus says, oh, yes, you are. (laughs) And here's how to do it. How do I love somebody when they slap me in the face? How do I love my enemies? And Jesus says, yeah, you better get to it because anybody can love somebody who loves them back. But when you do it, and they don't love you, then you show that you're one of mine. You're one of my followers because you do it like I would do it. So the absolute principle of authentic, full-throttle discipleship is very simply withness. Withness. The second one is the appropriate process. The appropriate process and that's very simply withness precedes witness notice that they come in a particular order that little conjunction there and is a major word just like with but it connects the two but it makes them equal but they have to be in the right order when I was a young guy, uh, just a, an adolescent one day, I think it was 12 or 13 years old, my father once pulled me aside and he said, hey, it's Saturday morning, it's time to work on the family car, get it ready for church. I want you to change the oil, learn how to do it. I thought, wow, I'm, I'm making my way in this rite of passage. I'm being responsible for the family car. And he said, okay, let's go to the garage, and I'm going to show you how to change the oil in your car. So he says, you heat that engine up, you get that oil good and thin, then you crawl underneath there and you pull out that drain plug and let the oil drain out, the old oil. And he showed me how to do that and so on and so forth. And then, and then he had his five quarts of oil sitting there and he had to change the oil filter, and he began to pour the oil in, and then he stopped himself. And he said, Randy, I'm about to make a mistake. You know what that is? I said, no. It looks like you're putting the oil in the car. That's what we're here for. He said, oh, no. He says, I forgot to put the drain plug back in the oil pan. So if I pour this oil in, it's all going to drain right back out on the driveway, right? So Adding new oil and draining old oil are absolutely essential, but one has to come before the other. My new friend Steve down here is a Marine, right? Once a Marine, always a Marine. I'll bet you dollars to donuts when Steve signed the dotted line and became a Marine, the recruiter didn't come out from the closet behind his desk with a new uniform saying, Steve, here's your uniform and here's your weapon. You've got two hours to make your flight. You're going to our embassy in Iraq, and you're going to join the unit that guards the embassy. I bet he didn't do that. But if he did, Steve would have said, oh, no, no, wait a minute, with deer-in-the-headlights kind of eyes. I don't even know how to put on this uniform. I don't know how to shoot an M-16, and you're going to put me on the job in combat situation over in Iraq? But you see, basic training is first. To teach him how to think like a marine and act like a marine and speak like a marine and live like a marine. And that's when you become a marine for always. Because it becomes so ingrained in you, that's just the way the rest of your life happens, right? Mrs. Steve, (laughs) isn't he a marine always? Yeah. Absolutely. But what happens that I find in a lot of Christian ministries and churches is We invite people to come to Christ, and they do. Powerfully and profoundly. And they become born again and a new creation. But then we just kind of drop the ball. Unintentionally, I'm sure, but we just kind of forget. And we just start thinking that, well, if they show up every Sunday in church and they're with us for about a year, then we can start plugging them into ministries and serve and go and do and do stuff for Jesus. And what have we forgotten? Basic training in how to become like Jesus by being with him and learning from him how to be like him. One has to precede the other in order for both to be effective. You can't have witness without witness because witness is the overflow of the witness. And you can't have witness without witness because then you're just using your own energies. And you're depending on yourself. You've got to have one before the other. And so I would encourage you friends is the more time you spend with Jesus. I mean with him as an intimate friend. Your intimacy will drive your ministry. Your relationship with him will drive your responsibility or your sense of it, but it's got to start with your union with christ and what i've what i've seen happen in, in a lot of churches is over the years, and I think this has happened nationally because uh, this is, wasn't an issue about a hundred years ago, but somehow when evangelical Christianity came to the forefront. We somehow got this out of order to where mission now was way out here in our priorities and union with Christ is way back here when they need to be together because it's the witness, it's the union, it's the friendship with Jesus that drives everything else. One comes from the other. So that's the appropriate process of authentic discipleship C.S. Lewis once wrote you put first things first and you get second things thrown in if you put second things first you lose both first and second things (laughs) it's pretty insightful isn't it I like Jesus better his was more simple seek first the kingdom of God and then all these things you need will be added to you. But seek first the kingdom of God. So, friends, take stock of your own life. We need to take stock of the community of Christ. Do we have this principle in place? Is our Learning to be with Jesus, absolutely a priority. Learning to become like him. You see, discipleship and sanctification, which means the Holy Spirit changing us, spiritual formation, holiness, godliness, do you realize they're basically all the same concept? Only sung in a different key, if you will. Because the call to discipleship is the call to change, to transformation, to become holy, to become godly, to be conformed to his image. Are you connecting the dots with me? But sometimes we try to do it in the wrong order. So that's the appropriate process. Then we come to the the third point that I want to make this morning, and that's the attainable product or products. And it's most visible in the way the list of disciples are included here. Well, first of all, what's the product of discipleship? Ultimately, it's Christlikeness. The more time I spend with him, the more I learn to love him, and the more I love him, the more I want to serve him. And the product of that is christ And then a derivative of Christ-likeness, obviously, is what? Love. Learning how to love people as Jesus loves them. Jesus said that, I want you to love each other as I have loved you. And then there's another derivative of that, and that's unity. You know, Jesus prayed the night before he was betrayed, or the night he was betrayed, he said, Lord, Father, help them to become, come to complete Unity so that they can know that you've sent me. Unity is a product of discipleship. Love, Christlikeness. And you know what? When we start getting all this thing, these things in order, then evangelism starts to take place on its own. Ever, have you ever met anybody who doesn't love to talk about who and what they love? Mm-mm. I mean, I love to talk about the Cavs and the Browns and the Indians and my grandkids. And I'll talk to you for days. But can I do that with Jesus that I am so familiar with him that it's just natural and easy to just kind of flow with him and talk about him because he's so special in my life? So evangelism begins to take care of itself. Generosity takes care of itself. Worship begins to be transformed. Community is transformed. But it starts with being with him, being transformed by him, and then the product of Christ-likeness begins to ooze out of our pores. And we see it start to take effect in every area of our lives. Let me just illustrate this real quick by looking at the the disciples. Notice the list of disciples that Mark gives us. Now, this this is an amazing study. Look at the the list of 12. First, you got Peter, all right? Peter, um, the compulsive one. Might be called a loose cannon. He opened his mouth only to rearrange his feet. (laughs) You know, one of those guys. Compulsive Peter, always talking when he should have been quiet. And then there is, well, let's see here. There's James and John. They were brothers, but Jesus nicknamed them sons of, or Boenergy, sons of thunder. That means they were probably hotheads. That's how they handled controversy or a perceived conflict. They were the guys of the road rage type. They just, you know, they had short fuses. All right, so you got Peter, you got these guys. You got four fishermen total. And then we've got Bartholomew. Um, he's also called Nathanael from John chapter one where Nathanael is introduced to Jesus for the first time and he said, can anything good come from Nazareth? So Nathanael or Bartholomew was kind of the cynic of the group, the wise guy, the snob. And then there was, let's see, Simon the Zealot He was an ardent nationalist, which basically means he was a terrorist. (laughs) Overthrow the government, the Roman government, and their control at any cost. And then he lists Judas. And notice he slides in the little phrase, betrayer, the lowlife, the guy who stabbed Jesus in the back. And oh, we forgot Matthew, the tax collector, who sold out to the system. And as a Jew, they hated his guts. You take those 12 people, how in the world did they live together for three years? (laughs) Can you imagine all those different personalities and those different interests and so on around the campfire at night and the questions they ask and the comments they made at each other? Can you imagine when Peter misspoke, somebody said, idiot, (laughs) really? Really? But Jesus was brilliant and he held them together and he trained them to become like him and they became a team. And when they came to the book of Acts and were filled with the Holy Spirit, they turned the world upside down. It was their training of three years and the fullness of the Spirit that changed the course of their lives. Now let me show you as we close up this last Illustration is from uh, Acts chapter 4, verse 13. And it shows us where John and Peter have been preaching. And the religious leaders pull them in to examine them and then eventually to imprison them. But I want you to notice what these religious leaders notice. They realize that John and Peter were unschooled, ordinary men. Now, how did they know that? It's probably because John and Peter were Galileans, and Galileans spoke with an accent. And if you were determined to be from Galilee, then that means you were on the wrong side of the tracks, you were unschooled, you were ordinary, you were lower class. But yet there was something different about these guys. They might have been from Galilee, but they also took note. They were astonished, and they took note that these men had been what? With Jesus Friends, that's the greatest compliment anybody could ever give you as a follower of Jesus. You just remind me of Jesus. What he would say, what he would do, how he would think, how he would love, how he would forgive, how he would handle relationships, how he would prioritize his life, so on and so forth. When somebody comes up to you with that, especially when you're under the gun and something isn't happening the way you want it to happen, and they take note that you've been with Jesus because you would have done what Jesus did under those circumstances. So, those are the three principles the absolute principle, the appropriate process, and the attainable product of Christ likeness. Now let me share as we wrap this up. Listen closely because this is an example of how true discipleship can be felt for generations to come. Back about a year ago, one of my pastors in Virginia came to me and he says, Randy, he said one Sunday morning I had a young naval officer come to church with his family, with his wife, kids, African-American naval officer. And the pastor, you know, over coffee, just said, hey, what brings you to church today? He said, well, I wanted to worship with Quakers. <laughs> and, and the pastor said, now, come on. You, you... Nobody just gets up in the morning and wants to go worship with Quakers or friends. Quaker is a slang term for, for friends, society of friends, what we are. And the guy says, well, yeah, I did. And he said, the reason is that back before the Civil War, it was a Quaker, a friend's person who bought my great-great-great-grandfather as a slave and his family. And he defied tradition because back then, tradition was you sold off the family. You made more money that way. Despicable, but that's the way it was done. This gentleman farmer a Quaker, a follower of Jesus. Yes, he bought them, but he kept the family together. And he not only kept the family together, but he taught them how to read and to write. He shared the prophets with them. He made them part of his family. And when the old farmer died, he willed the property, the whole lock, stock, and barrel, to his family this family. And it was this young naval officer who said, that property is still in our family name. And I vowed that if I ever was transferred to Norfolk, Virginia, I was going to find a Quaker church and I'm going to worship because I want to know what those Quakers believe. <laughs> and you see, that's how friends, the society of friends and Jesus were founded way back in the sixteen hundreds because they wanted to restore us to New Testament discipleship of what it means to learn how to be with Jesus in the Spirit so that we become like him. And it changes everything. Enough said. Let's pray. Father, show us again and again that the essence of our walk with Jesus is just friendship, to be with him, to learn to become like him. And then out of this relationship, everything else flows. Father, I ask that today the glorious grace and truth of your word The glorious grace and truth of our Lord Jesus Christ will be written on our hearts now and flow joyfully from our lives this week. For your good, for our good, and for your glory we pray. Amen.